0: You're listening to the SEI podcast series brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney.
1: Good evening uh, and welcome to part two of the Living in a Warming World series uh, convened by Dr. Francis Flanagan and the Sydney Environment Institute. My name is Christopher Wright and I'm a professor of organisation studies here at the University of Sydney Business School. And before we begin proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So, tonight, our panel discussion explores why we need to think about inequality and climate change together. And this is an issue that's particularly timely, I think, given a range of developments that we're probably all very familiar with and have probably drawn us here tonight on this cold winter's evening. Developments such as the spectacle of political leaders around the world complicit in the further expansion of fossil fuel extraction at a time when we need to embrace a radical decarbonisation of our economic systems. The dominance of neoliberal policy agendas aimed at depleting a nation's common resources for health, education, transport, energy, etc. Increasing levels of income inequality, the growth of precarious employment, and a return to the social divisions of an earlier century. The growing movement towards anti-democratic laws, silencing dissent and questioning those who might seek to change the current trajectory, Uh, silencing the need for environmental and political democracy, and also the forestalled attempts at carbon emissions mitigation, evident in the recent Paris Climate Agreement which is perpetually vulnerable to rescission by vested interests and their political enablers, and of course on track to deliver far too little to avoid catastrophic climate disruption. Indeed, climate change has the potential to significantly accelerate inequality itself. Low-income and precariously employed Australians tend to live and work in areas more susceptible to temperature extremes and in buildings less able to withstand them, as we heard in our first Uh, living in a warming world talk some weeks back. They're less able to afford the cost of energy required for air conditioning, have less access to green public space, shaded recreation areas, etc. At the same time, rising inequality in Australia is making it harder to tackle climate change. Elites in highly unequal societies pollute more, waste more water, emit more carbon dioxide and produce and consume more products that are designed not to last. Highly unequal societies are less democratically responsive and more likely to accept climate change solutions, inverted commas, that are premised on the privatisation of livable space, let alone geoengineering. So tonight's speakers uh, will unpack these issues and outline the case for the necessity of seeing climate change and inequality as intertwined challenges. Now we have a late change to our advertised speaker list Uh, as unfortunately Professor David Schlossberg has been struck down by the flu uh, today and has been unable to attend this evening. He's quite ill, so he sends his apologies. However, this gives us a bit more time for Q&A and perhaps a little bit more space for our two speakers to outline their arguments. However, we do aim to complete tonight's session by around 7.10, 7.15 at the latest. So let me introduce our two speakers and then I'll hand over to them. Uh, and then we'll have time for Q&A after that. So our first speaker tonight is Kate Orty, who is the ACTU Commissioner for Sustainability and the Environment and a professorial fellow with the University of Melbourne. In addition to these current roles, Kate has also had an extensive background in leadership roles to do with climate change, including Victorian Commissioner for Environmental Sustainability from 2009 to 2014, Chair of the Ministerial Reference Council on Climate Change Adaptation in Victoria, member of the Victorian Premier's Climate Change Advisory Council, and a City of Melbourne Climate Change Ambassador, developing the Future Melbourne Plan 2026. She chairs the Northeastern Water Community Energy Advisory Board, and and is on the board of the Banksia Foundation. And in early 2018, Kate agreed to be co-opted to the Board of Sustainable Business Australia, so an extensive... Uh, experience in a range of professional roles in this space. And Kate is going to speak about some recent work she's been doing on climate change implications for women, indigenous and regional communities, which is of particular relevance for discussions of inequality and climate change. Our second speaker is Professor Mark Steers, uh, the Director of the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney here. He was previously Professor of Political Theory and Fellow of University College Oxford chief executive of the New Economics Foundation and chief advisor and speechwriter to UK Labour leader Ed Miliband. He's the author of many books and articles that engage with the development of progressive political movements in the UK and the US and tonight he'll focus on issues of climate change and political inequality. So our speakers will talk for around 15 minutes or so each and we'll then have time for Q&A from the floor which I'll chair. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Kate Orty.
0: Thanks very much, Chris, for that welcome, um, that warm welcome, that warm Sydney welcome. And I am, of course, the ACT's Commissioner at the moment, but I have a long link to Sydney. In fact, my uh, great, 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 great something or other was here in Pitt Street some many, many years ago. So I might be south of the border and a Mexican, but um, only partially. I'd like to start, though, by just adding to the acknowledgement that we've heard here from Chris. And I do this for a number of reasons. You've heard a bit about my background. I was, in fact, much more involved in a range of other things than the environment for some many years and that involved the Aboriginal Legal Service in Victoria, the deaths in custody investigation in Victoria, Tasmania and then with Pat Dodson in WA, setting up a kurri court in Shepparton and setting up an Aboriginal sentencing court in Kalgoorlie then known as the most racist town in Australia after a Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission inquiry and for that reason alone or for those reasons I'd like to just make a further acknowledgement. We've just come out of Reconciliation. We've seen Pat Dodson stand in the MCG and talk about justice, and you're all here because you care about justice and the environment. And I'd like to say that I acknowledge Aboriginal people for their resourcefulness and their resilience, whether they're Gadigal, whether they're Yora, whether they're Yorta Yorta, whether they're Wiradjuri, Wiradjuri, or whether they're none And I do that because we have killed Aboriginal people in this country, and we've stolen their wages in this country. And we've also broken their hearts in this country. That's our colonial legacy. And I'm part of it. I'm not saying it's just you or anybody else. I'm part of it. And I'd like to acknowledge Aboriginal people for their resourcefulness and their resilience. And that brings me to what I want to talk about here tonight, which is justice and the environment. And coming up on the train from Canberra today, and I'd like to give an acknowledgement to New South Wales Rail Link. They got me here on time. Which is different from V Line, and of course, my carbon footprint is less than it would have otherwise been. I'd like to just say that uh, there's a range of things that really need to be considered when we're thinking about the environment, climate change, and justice. And um, in talking to Chris, I'll change some of what I was going to say, but I hope that I still speak on point. Some little while ago, I contributed a a chapter to a collection and talked about what the London School of Economics had to say about the exposure of women and children to climate change. And I'm going to run through a list, so bear with me, please. I don't usually read my speeches, but I want to read this particular data. Boys were given preferential treatment at rescue, as we know, in some of the extreme events in what we would describe as the subcontinent and other parts of the world. In Sri Lanka, for instance... Boys, boys survived a recent tsunami because they were taught to swim. Girls weren't. Girls were not taught to swim and they didn't survive. London School of Economics also tells us that women and girls suffer more from shortages of food, particularly if breastfeeding or there are food hierarchies during times of extreme events. Women will often avoid using shelters because they find themselves exposed to sexual and physical violence. That's noted. It's documented. It's not just women, the women's movement making this up. Women's reduced access to food results in greater vulnerability to disease, which itself is elevated in times of floods and extreme events. Natural disasters, and I use natural in inverted commas, lower the life expectancy of women more than men. The London School of Economics tells us this. Women, boys and girls... uh 14 times more likely to die during a disaster than our men. In Pakistan, during the 1995 cyclone disasters in Bangladesh, 90% of the 140,000 people who died were women. In the French heat waves of 2003, most of the deaths were of elderly women. In times of drought, women spend even more of their time and energy in locating and drawing water. Up to 85% of their time is engaged in those activities. As women make up a vast vast proportion of the agricultural labour in any developing country, changes to rainfall patterns and other climate change impacts result in them losing their means of support. Most of those trapped in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in the United States were African-American women and children. Further, more than 90,000 people affected by that hurricane earned less than $10,000 annually. More than 40% 40 of the children were living below the poverty line. More than 59% of those African-American households lacked a vehicle and people could not self-help to evacuate. Going to the Asian tsunami, more than 70% of the dead from the 2004 tsunami were in fact women. In the 2008 Myanmar cyclone in Argus, 100% of married women lost their main source of income, as did 87% of unmarried women. In Banda Aceh, during the tsunami in the worst affected village of Kuala Chankoi, 80% of all deaths were of women. I think it speaks for itself as to equity and as to gender equity. What we need to recognise is that the challenges are a number. They're structural. They can be financial. They can reflect the lack of a safe land or shelter place. They can be limited by access to material and financial resources. They can echo a lack of relevant skills and knowledge. And they can reflect the high prices of agricultural inputs and materials. They can be an expression of cultural barriers, including taboos, which are cultural. Now, having said all of that, let me make this point, and this is the one I really want to make tonight. Just because we're affected by climate change doesn't make any or all of us victims, although it certainly makes many people victims in ways that we will barely struggle to understand. And the reason I say that is because the thing that's come through to me as I started in my comments about Aboriginal people is that we are resourceful and we are resilient. We can meet challenges and we know we do. In really prosaic ways, women in those places that I've just described have done things as seemingly insignificant as this. They've farmed ducks instead of chickens in flood-prone areas. Well, of course. How smart. How smart. They've moved to higher ground and they've elevated their shelters. They've stored seed against the possibility of loss. They've moved livestock proactively because they recognise the need to do so. They consume more traditional foods and many people in the Pacific will tell us about that as well. They engage in energy saving with biogas and stove changes, reducing their dependence on foraging for wood. They have been switching their crops. They have been intercropping and diversifying and they've been changing their irrigation practices and they've been using traditional medicines which are readily available. They've been organising collective action and that brings me to the thing I want to say about us here today, Australia, because while I'm the Commissioner for Sustainability and the Environment in the ACT, I'm also a member of a community in North East Victoria and in that community we've been having conversations with people who provide us with their energy and we've worked out that capitalists will compete with each other to be the first person on the block if they know that we mean business and we've found that getting capitalists who run the energy sector to talk to us has not been as difficult as we might have thought it would be when we want them to compete with each other friendly or otherwise we are not necessarily or only victims my other lesson out of this is the yorta yorta community on the murray the murray is called by aboriginal people many things but dungala is one of the names they've given that that vast stretch of water when it floods across the Barma Forest when i was the commissioner for victoria's uh, the commissioner in victoria for environmental sustainability my long roots with yorta, yorta yorta women in particular was something i wanted to speak to because i knew that we needed to do more than just write reports hand them to government and wait for them to moulder on a bookshelf and in talking to women who were from the yorta yorta it was cl- clear to me that they were getting what i would describe as the bullshit science that you can get anywhere you like around regional victoria or regional australia and we needed to try and make sure that we were communicating science to them in a way that was meaningful, viable, real, relevant and easy to apply. And I spoke to the great Dave Griggs, a a Yorkshireman I think he might be, he's now in Dover or somewhere, one of those places in the UK, and asked him if he would come and talk to the Yorta Yorta about climate and science. And he said to me initially, well why would that be useful because I don't know whether I can tell them anything that would in fact be something they can deploy. Dave and Amanda Lynch came up to our discussions on the Murray with the Yorta Yorta and spoke about climate and climate change climate science and at the end of that the interesting thing that Dave had to say was that he thought he would be able to contribute nothing but he had learned a great deal And he'd learned a great deal from Yorta Yorta people because while they were talking about cultural mapping and fishing along the river and what they did with the long neck turtle, which is in fact their totem, they were also talking about drought and climate change and what that meant for them in terms of their iconography, their culture, their sense of themselves, their understanding of that river, its depletion as a result of climate change and drought. And they had in fact, informed one of the great climate change scientists of our time, an IPCC author, a person who had been humble enough to say that he didn't know what he could contribute, and suddenly we had a conversation happening, and it was not the conversation of victims. It was not people wringing their hands and saying, how can we help? How can you help? What can I contribute? It was a conversation of potentially equals. We can do this. We know we can. In my small country town community of Euroa, we set up what we called the Euroa Environment Series in 2015, and we thought we would invite David Corolli to come and talk to us about climate change and climate science. And we thought we would have one meeting We thought that would be all we could do because we were a tiny little fly speck in the middle of regional Victoria and who really cares about what we think is important or who really knows what we think is important. As we sat around that kitchen table and reflected on what it was we could do about a Euroa environment series, suddenly we realised we had resources. We had the great Bob Welsh who was previously the CEO of Vic Super. He lives in the Strathbogie Ranges and he was prepared to talk to us about climate change superannuation. We had Rob Gell, the weatherman, who was prepared to come up the highway and he shared his car on the way back with one of the other people who came up, Alan Piers, because Alan came like me on the train. We had people who talked about local government because local government is as important as what happens in that other Canberra on the hill. Not the Canberra that I think is important, that little Canberra, the little cool city of Canberra where there is going to be 100% renewable energy by 2020, but that other Canberra, the big Canberra, the Canberra on the hill. And we found that people wanted to talk to us. They wanted to be part of the conversation. They wanted to share and they wanted to be inspired and inspire. And that brings me back to what I feel as an Australian. I have an enormous tenderness for this country. It's come out of where I've lived and who I've been and what I've done and whether I've ridden ponies in Jim Gymkhana's or whether I've done well or not in physics at the Darwin High School. I have a great tenderness for this country and that's why you're here too because you don't just feel feel that we need to do something about this, you know it's important for us here in this place. And the thing that I've gained out of all those conversations with all those people, mostly Aboriginal people and in particular women, is that we all care about the places we know. Finally, our theory of change in the three-and-a-half-thousand-people town of Euroa, which came out of our Euroa Environment Series, is simple. It's simple and it's threefold, and I'd urge you to reflect on it. You'll come up with a different one, and yours will be yours and ours will be ours. But ours is this. Start where you are, because that's the place you know and care about. Organise because that's the sort of skill we need to cultivate. And we don't even know how good we are at it until we do it. And we found that in our little town. And then finally, and this brings me to the hashtag that you've got for Twitter tonight, show what you did. We are lousy at showing what we did and it's one of the reasons why the politicians on the hill can afford to ignore what we have to say at evenings such as this because we don't show what we did. We have decided in our little complex of community that those are the three things that ought to drive change. They work for us. They work for people even like me who set up roles as commissioners writing reports. And every time I write a report, I try and incorporate those sorts of tenets because they're the ones that are going to take the book or the report off the bookshelf and make the recommendations real. Thanks.
2: Good evening. Can you hear that? Does that work? Um, well, thank you so much. It's a very hard act to follow. Uh, it's um, wonderful to be here. Um, I also acknowledge the owners of this land and the injustices uh, they've suffered and the sovereignty that they never ceded. Uh, and I'm delighted that I see so many people here tonight, even though David isn't with us, David Schlossberg. That's either because you didn't know that he wasn't coming. Uh, <laughs> Or or because the issue is so important that you decided to come anyway. uh, Let's go for the latter in the sure knowledge that is, in fact, the former. Um, But it's incredibly important, nonetheless, to be having these discussions. And and my role in tonight's debate is that I always come to events like these and, and play the gloomy one. Uh, so I shall be as dystopian as I can possibly muster. Um, even though I know that there are some amongst us, and there are some now increasingly that you see in academic uh, discussions of climate and inequality, who think that, we, that the moment of dystopia is past, the moment of pessimism is past, and that we should be embracing a fully optimistic uh, you know, new utopian post-human, uh, post-climate catastrophe future. Uh, I- I'm not in that camp, as you might have guessed. Uh, so I'm going to share a little bit of reason for gloom. Uh, but I'm also going to hopefully come out the other side with a a little bit of a call for action, because I think that once we uh, face the realities that we are, in fact, confronted with, we'll also discover that we do, in fact, have the agency for change, if only we choose to use it. Now, my choice for dystopianism or gloomyism starts because in a previous life, before I arrived uh, here at Sydney to run the policy lab, I I was a philosopher, um, and... There's a particular political philosopher that I always turn to um, when I think about big, hard questions like the one that we're confronted with tonight. Uh, and that's Max Weber, uh, who wrote, as you might know, at the beginning of the 20th century about a Germany uh, sort of coming out of the chaos and catastrophe for them that was the First World War. And there's a wonderful line in Weber's essay about politics where he says that you know it's really important to have passion and vision Uh, and, and a view of a better future that's tremendously sort of important crucial when you're trying to build political change but you also need something else and that's a psychological ability to in his phrase look at the reality of life with an unsparing gaze and be a match for those realities inwardly And it's that lesson that I really want to push today in our our discussion, that sense that we can only build change, that we can only make a better future if we're prepared to look at the situation we actually face honestly, openly, with strength, and with that deep, deep desire to know the realities that we're confronted with. And my argument tonight is that once we do that, we see that two political traditions have failed us in the last 20, 30, possibly 40 years, One of those traditions we talk about quite often in contexts like this, and that is neoliberalism. But there's another tradition which has also failed us, which I want to call tonight reformism. So my argument tonight is that when you think about climate change and when you think about inequality, neither neoliberalism nor conventional reformism have the answers for us. And the task which confronts people like us is to craft an alternative tradition, a new tradition that can actually get us out of the mess that we're in. So that's the argument I'm going to make tonight. So what I wanna do is I wanna start by the simple stuff, which is that the reasons that neoliberalism has left us down, which most of you in the room will have heard before, uh, and then I'm gonna turn briefly to talk about why reformism has also let us down, and then I'll establish, uh, I hope, an alternative. Now, we shouldn't really need to go over the neoliberalism argument uh, because it's painfully clear to all of us who are confronted with the realities of climate change, with the warming world, but also with the serious and sustained and structural inequalities that we face, uh, that neoliberalism, the economic settlement, the political settlement entrenched in the late 1970s that we've been living with ever since is not an answer to the problems we face. And, And there are big, complex theoretical models which can explain that, but it really comes down to one simple issue which is that the only voice that counts in the neoliberal world is the corporate voice. Neoliberalism is a ideology which says that maximizing profit and especially short-term profit is the only thing that really should count in the metric in the way that you evaluate what's going on in any particular political, social, or economic order. And that goes not just to the way that we run our businesses, but then it becomes the way that we run our governments too. And so we move to a, a spreadsheet world which looks for a particular kind of return in a particular kind of instance. And it's not capable of understanding that there is more to life than those returns and that nature, that way of evaluating issues. And it's that dominance of the corporate voice, the corporate calculus, which has led to both of the things that we're talking about tonight, to to an inability to deal with climate and environmental catastrophe as as it grows, but also an inability to deal with inequality and especially an inability to deal with those two things as they interconnect or intertwine. Poor people who do badly because of the warming world around us don't feature in a metric which values corporate return, profit, that traditional way of thinking about return on investment. And that's the fundamental failing of neoliberalism. More and more people know that. And when I attack attack neoliberalism in that sense, actually, it's no longer the kind of argument which is the sort of uh, reserve of of the left... Um, it's an argument which now finds uh, sort of advocates and supporters on all parts of the political spectrum, in all kinds of political parties. So the notion that this, this way of thinking about things, this way of measuring our success and structuring our economic, social, and political life has passed, uh, and the fact that it's passed is now widely recognized, as I say, uh, across the world and across the political spectrum. And that, in a sense, may be a cause for optimism until you look at what may take its place. Because the dominant alternative to neoliberalism, which has been crafted probably since the late 1980s, but has emerged through the 1990s and into the early 2000s, is what I want to call reformism. And reformism does tackle some of the gravest evils that we are talking about tonight. It is conscious of the true scientific analysis of the nature of the changing climate around us. It is conscious of human beings' role in shaping that climate. And it is conscious too, I think, of some of the economic analysis which reveals the intersections between climate change and inequality. So reformism does all those things for us. But what it isn't conscious of is something else, which is political inequality. It's not conscious of the fact that some people's voices have been listened to in this debate, and many other people's haven't. That there is, at the the root of what's gone wrong in the last 20, 30 years, not just the science and the economics, but also that question of voice, of representation, and what I want to really call presence. Putting all that another way, trying to be less theoretical for a moment, there are some people, many people, most people, who are not invited to our conversation. And as a result of not being invited to our conversation, they feel deeply disempowered, both by those who advocate for neoliberalism and by those of us who advocate for reform. They weren't really invited to Paris. They weren't really invited to Copenhagen. They weren't really invited to Kyoto. And as a result, they don't feel as if their concerns have been part of the equation which people have tackled. That is a profound challenge to those of us who care about this movement. And I think that you realise it when you work in an organisation, an institution like this. It's a wonderful university, Sydney University. I worked at many other great universities before. But there is nonetheless still a revolving door from a good undergraduate program here into the tops of our political parties or the tops of our businesses or the tops of our public servants. And that revolving door is fabulous in many ways. There are great people of great strength and great talent and they go on to be influential. But there are so many people who can't be part of that story and whose voices are therefore locked out. And if you want to build a movement which can tackle climate change, We need to be conscious that tackling political inequality, that voicelessness, that exclusion, has to be a central part of the process, too. That's the challenge that I want to face to us today. If you want to build a movement to tackle our warming world, we need to change the way that we behave ourselves, as well as to change the behavior of those with whom we may disagree. I'll close by saying what that might look like and just three suggestions, I guess. I mean, one of them we've heard already, I think, in Kate's fantastic presentation is a politics which is grounded in place uh, and which is identified as that old slogan used to be in, in, in in the environmental movement of thinking globally but learning to act locally once again. Uh, David Ritter's wonderful new book is the second example I wanted to use. Anyone who hasn't read uh, The Cold Truth yet should go off and and buy a copy tonight, or if the bookshops are closed, as they are in Sydney, they're not in London, uh, then you can get one tomorrow. But but it starts in in exactly the place that we have to start in the everyday, not in the grandiose, not in the lab, not with another spreadsheet, a rival spreadsheet or a different graph, but in the experience of putting the seatbelt on his small child as they leave school, of an evening and just recognizing how damn hot it is. And in those everyday experiences which are shared between people of all backgrounds, all levels of wealth, all levels of all ethnicities, every gender, those are the shared experiences of the everyday which give us the possibility of actually mobilizing a movement or grounding change. The third example I will use, some of you will know this work already, is the Sydney Alliance work uh, on on the relationship between climate and inequality as it's experienced by people who live in the west of Sydney today. Uh, And building slowly, door by door, community hall by community hall, a conversation with people who've never thought about environmental politics before, probably never thought about global warming in the abstract before, but are experiencing its realities. And as a result of those realities, are ready to be mobilized for change. So what I want to suggest today is that very simple thing. We've been let down, those of us who care about both these issues have been let down by a broken politics. But it's broken on both the right and the left, by the neoliberals who listen only to corporate interest, by reformers who too often have only listened to the interests of people a little bit like themselves, with the same university degrees, with the same scientific experience. The way which we tackle our warming world is by putting political inequality front and center. The movement we build must be an inclusive movement, an open movement, a movement which shares and a movement which values the expressions of everybody. And I want to just close with one final thought, which is when I, I, I talk like this all the time, I apologize, uh, but sometimes people say, okay, well, it's all very well, but it's, it's kind of sentimental. Uh, perhaps it's a little bit sort of romantic. Uh, perhaps it's even you know, occasionally mawkish. And that may well be the case, but sentiment, affection, affect, is exactly as Kate said, the root of drawing change. And I was struck by that uh, just a few days ago, because it's the anniversary of the death of my father. My dad died a year ago um, and we buried him uh, a year ago tomorrow on a hillside uh, outside Cardiff where I was brought up. And that image will never, never leave me. So Uh, My dad's buried on the top of a hill which overlooks the valleys of South Wales. And if you've ever been to South Wales, you'll know that two things are captured instantaneously when you look out over that hillside. First is the beauty, the glory of our natural landscape. The hills, the sky, the trees, the grass, the sounds of the birds. And the second is the lives which have been scarred by industrial injustice for decades, if not centuries. People in small communities where still, to this very day, a quarter of the population are ill all of the time because the depths of poverty are so, so severe as a result of the way in which our economic order has worked for so long. And those issues to me, just looking over that hillside, are necessarily intertwined. Once you listen to the voices of the people who live in those valleys, you also Listen to the earth upon which they build and the lives in which they've constructed. That's how you get out of the mess that we're in, when you say people and planet together will build a better society and a safer world for all of our futures.
1: Thank you you very much, Kate and Mark, for those marvellous, inspiring words. So can I now invite our two speakers up to the table? Um, We've now got time for Q&A, but before we get to that, I just wanted to, uh, I guess, throw a question to both of you, probably more to Mark to begin with and and also Kate. Mark, you mentioned there's a failure, you think, from both the right and the left politically on climate um, and inequality in terms of uh, neoliberalism and reformism, but it strikes me that... A lot of the reformism we've seen hasn't really been from the left, it's been from the centre. Um, technocratic, possibly former social democratic politicians who've moved to the centre and embraced the market solutions, the market mechanisms, the carbon pricing, that sort of stuff, and it hasn't come to much. Whereas the left, for me, I think seems to be the sort of suggestions that someone like Naomi Klein in Canada might be coming up with, which is so- sounds a lot like what you guys are talking about. It's community embedded, it's the blockadia resistance to... The new carbon frontiers—the tar sands, the the coal mines—but it's also communities trying to generate their own solutions around community-owned energy, uh, renewables, these sort of things. So, just throw that to you guys and see what you think on that.
2: Yeah, no, I think that. I mean, there's there's a lot which is which is right in that, and I think the argument about community energy is a great example that you use towards the end. I think there is still there still is a challenge though, and I guess I I I want to kind of try and get it across as crisply as I can which is the, the, the left is often worried about the same problem. This is, this is true, I think, for, for you know, 150 years. It's not just true as a part of this environmental debate. But The left is often worried about people, it thinks, don't share its perspective and don't share the sort of understanding, the depth of understanding of the analysis upon which that perspective is based. So in, in the old Marxist days, that was false consciousness theory. Yeah? So uh, the workers won't revolt. There must be something intellectually wrong with the workers. And I do think part of the environmental movement, not all of it, but part of it has been subject to that same problem. You know, these folks out there don't get how serious climate is, you know, the climate challenge is. So the best thing to do is just to carve them out of the process and not worry about them too much. And, and that debate, I mean, I've not been in Australia long enough to know how that plays out here. But in Europe, that's a very powerful argument because you do get people who just say they can't be part of our coalition because they don't get it. And I guess my, my hypothesis is, as long as you say that, uh, then you aren't, going, you aren't going to be able to get the change that you want. So just to give a very brief example, I mean, Paris is like that, yeah? Which is like, Paris is a, is a fantastic moment in many ways, but in the US, at least, it was a technocratic triumph, which is gone, poof, just like that, when there's a political switch. And that's because the, the hard, long, deeper work of mobilizing at that community level didn't accompany it.
0: I'd just like to say that I find, in the people that I talk to about these matters, that they may not come to the table to discuss a betong. They might not come to the table to worry about biodiversity per se, but they will come to the table when we talk to them about what the co-benefits might be of doing something about climate change and thinking about the economic imperative for themselves. And the really staggering work for me when I was in Victoria was the material that was coming out of what was happening with solar panels and where they were being installed... And I lived in Carlton and did all the Parkville stuff as a university student, and lived in Brunswick, and was astonished that the places where they were installing solar panels were Wheelers Hill and Kath and Kimland. And the reason for that was that people were dealing with those really grave concerns about how to pay their mortgage and their three-car registrations and get their kids through school. And we can get those people to the table about co-benefits. My great lesson about this was when we ran that session about climate change and superannuation in Euroa. And we had the wonderful, as I've said, Bob Welsh, stellar contributor about these issues from Vic Super talking about this. And my colleagues who are invariably people who do worry about the betong and the brush-tailed fasca gale and the fact that the male of the brush-tailed fasca gale dies after breeding folks so keep that in mind. It makes them eminently sexy and interesting. But the people who were worried about the issues of biodiversity were saying to me, why would I go to a seminar about superannuation and climate change? And when they came They went away and said, I now understand why I went to that. So we have to make the opportunities available. We have to try and engage people who might not ordinarily come through the door. And it has to be door by door in that wonderful Welsh way, singing all the way singing all the way. We have to do that and every one of the people who's here tonight is an agent for the sort of change we need to see happen. Now I'm not suggesting go home and knock on your neighbour's door and say can we have a conversation about climate change but we need to be not poking people in the chest and saying do as I tell you, we need to be saying can we have a conversation and that's in fact what worked with my other life the Koori Courts. That's what worked. Can we have a conversation? We stopped talking about penalising Aboriginal people in the Shepherd and Curry Court. We started talking about having a sentencing conversation. And when we did that, the whites in Rotary felt they were part of it as well, as did the National Party representative who came to the, that court when we ran it and sat in the back of the court and sobbed through the stories. Now, we need to find a way to involve those people in the conversations that are, one would think, more or less anathema to them. And when they get there, we need to be persuasive. My other life as a barrister, we need to be persuasive. And that comes to your point, Christopher, which is we can't just be telling people what to do. We've got to bring them with us.